Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. I've now come to the end of chapter 3 in the book of Galatians. Um, we'll take a break after this week, and so next week we're going to start a little four-week series called Puzzling Passages, where we take a look at misused and misunderstood passages in the Bible. Um, we're still taking ideas for that, and so we'll let you know a couple ways that you can get those ideas to us, and we'll consider um, putting that in for one of the sermons, um, so we can talk about things that are on your mind um, and open up discussions um, that are real community discussions that we're having. Um, but we will end the chapter that we've been in, the book of Galatians, um, before we get there next week. So if you have a Bible, please open up with me to the book of Galatians. If you don't have one, there's a black hardback underneath the seat around you. So hopefully, um, you're more than welcome to grab one of those if you'd like to, to flip open with us. We'll be at the very end of Galatians chapter 3. And the passage that we're in this morning is the payoff for the last few weeks we've been doing of reading Galatians 3. So Apostle Paul, who, who wrote Galatians, um, has been in the middle of some very methodical and sometimes very thick, uh, weighty um, discussion and argumentation um, to get to his point. So he's talked about Abraham. He's mentioned the Galatians' experience converting um, into um, faith with Jesus. He's talked about some various scriptural arguments um, that he built his uh, belief off of. And if you remember the basic premise of Galatians, the, what Paul's trying to communicate is that Gentile Christians don't have to be circumcised or otherwise start to follow um, these um, works of the law, the Mosaic law, in order to be fully accepted into the family of God. Um, it's by faith and faith alone. First, the faithfulness of Jesus, and then the faith that creates in us and that we are accepted, that we find our, our place. Um, and he now comes to the grand conclusion of this long argument. Um, it's a magnificent passage. Um, it is by far the most talked about passage, and particularly one verse that we have here, um, Galatians 3.28. Um, it's the most talked about, the most written about, the most debated, the most discussed and probably maybe the most historically influential, influential verse that is here in the book of Galatians. Um, I read one um, scholar who was doing an analysis of the research that had been written, uh, and the number he had come up with from surveying what he was, had access to was something to the effect of like 20 to 1 um, books, articles, studies written about this verse compared to other verses in Galatians. Um, just mountains of discussion. And again, like I said, History has, has changed often with appeals to, among other verses, um, the, the verses we find here in Galatians 3. So let's read together. We'll pick it up in verse 26 and read through verse 29. Here's what the scripture says to you and I this morning. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, or sons and daughters of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This last verse helps cinch the whole argument in Galatians 3. He's been talking about Abraham. He's been talking about the promise that God made to Abraham and then to Abraham's offspring, Christ. And he's been talking about how 
it is that people gain access to that inheritance. Um, the inheritance of being the son of God. The inheritance that is rightfully Jesus. And he says here, he, he wraps it all up. It's those who are Christ. It's not those who follow certain laws of the, the, the Mosaic law. It's not those who are circumcised. It's not those who follow other distinctions or divisions. It's simply those who have faith. It's those who have been baptized. Um, then that makes you Abraham's offspring. Now you can be included under the person of Christ and receiving that promise and, and being guaranteed that inheritance. Um, you are now an heir. Now he mentions um, adoption and baptism right off the bat. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons or sons and daughters of God through faith. This is a very common way of Paul looking at or conceptualizing salvation. Um, so there's different ways, different metaphors, different language you can use. And the Bible uses to talk about what it means to be saved. Um, a lot of the ones that are popular um, in recent years have been legal. We're guilty. We're sinners. Um, we need to be forgiven. We need to be declared not guilty. We need a substitute to take our punishment. Um, there are other metaphors, ways of viewing salvation um, that get at different aspects. Um, one is the, the idea that we are enslaved to sin and to death. Paul says in the last passage, even to the law itself. And we've been freed. We've been liberated through Christ's work on the cross and through his resurrection. Another one, though, a very popular one for Paul, is a family metaphor. It's the idea that because of what Jesus has done, you and I, those who have faith and are baptized, you and I can become what Jesus already is. Jesus, by nature, for all of eternity, is God's Son. He's the Son of God. And He's granted certain rights because of that. Again, He's an heir to the promises of God. And what has happened is that because of what's taking place, because of the work he's done, because of his self-sacrificial death, he has enabled you and I to receive by grace, by gift, what he has by nature. Um, we have, um, I, my family has a, uh, my, my parents adopted a little girl uh, a handful of years ago, um, and uh, I have an older sister, it's myself, and then a little brother who's uh, in him right now, and she's still in middle school, maybe just started high school. You probably know that. Um, <laughs> and she comes from a, a tough background uh, and has um, some more issues, um, perhaps, than, than most of us in a more stable environment um, get uh, as we come out of childhood. Um, and what I have always enjoyed by the fact that I'm blood-related by the fact that my parents are my parents, right? I didn't choose it. They're gracious to me in, in giving it to me, but technically, right, it's something that is almost uh, relationally contractual between us. Those of you with children, I think, understand this, right? It's my child. There's this link here that can't be broken or really explained. Um, I'm going to offer my love. I'm going to offer my protection. I'm going to offer my support. Um, th these gifts that I've always had and still have access to, now this perhaps stranger. Now this, this alien, someone who wasn't a part of this beforehand, because of a gracious choice, allows someone to come into that same relationship. The relationship, the family of God, Christians describe as the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, from all of eternity, themselves 
by themselves since the before creation, um, like we, we sang about, um, speaking to existence, something other than themselves, and then embarking on this mission to invite that which has been created to enjoy all the privileges that, that Jesus enjoys. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is so intimately connected with the Father. His prayer life, his devotional life, that same connection, the same love that Jesus feels, the same love that Jesus gives to the Father, that's now ours, you and I, those in Christ, adopted sons and daughters into God's family. Jesus is, has kind of unfiltered access to the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. The Spirit gives him power and guidance. That same access to the Spirit is now yours and it's now mine. Because of Christ, because of our adoption into the family of God. He says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Notice that the pronouns changed in this passage. He had previously been talking about we. We were, we were, we were held under captivity. We were under the power of. And now he switches it to you. He's been building up to this point, and he's here. He goes, you, you Galatians. You, Sweetwater Christian Church, you are sons of God, daughters of God, through faith. And then he brings up baptism. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. A couple things to notice here. Um, the mention of baptism is surprising to some. Um, Paul has not mentioned baptism at all. There's been very little clues, perhaps, that he's about to mention baptism. And all of a sudden, at the height of his argument here, it makes a grand entrance. And he seems to, if you look at the parallelism between the things that Paul is saying, it seems to stand in the place of where he would normally put faith. In fact, he'd just done it in the earlier verse. Through faith, you and I are sons of God in Jesus. Now we've put on Christ, we've gone into Christ through baptism. Now baptism for the early Christians... For you and I, is it's kind of like the, the ritual ceremony, the, the, the initiation procedure, if you will, into a new family. Um, very similar, not unlike, I think, our modern conception of weddings. Um, a wedding itself is not making you married. Um, someone who officiates weddings, um, sometimes you get some questions about, like, you know, what has to be in the service? Uh, you know, how many witnesses do we have to have? Um, and the answer is surprising to many. It's like nothing has to be in the service. You don't need any witnesses. I was officiating uh, one couple's wedding. And it was a very small wedding, and they had actually flown into people to be their witnesses, and were kind of upset at me for the fact that their marriage certificate had no place for these witnesses to sign. And I think didn't want their friends to understand, but like we wouldn't have flown them in otherwise. We needed we needed some witnesses. We wanted their name to be on the certificate. Like, you could have asked me. I've never seen a marriage certificate that, that needs these, these witnesses signed for it. Um, again, with this ceremony, right? The ceremony is important. For you and I, most of us have this cultural connection that, that you're really not completely married until you have this community celebration. You go through these, these rituals, exchange vows, and things of that nature. Um, a good friend of mine that used to be at the church, work at the church, Adam Kathleen McIntyre, um, for different legal reasons, they had to get legally married before their ceremony, like a month or a couple weeks beforehand. Um, and you know, they had come to me. We were talking. Um, They're like, you know, do we act married? 
we move in with one another. Like it's kind of a, a weird place for us. We're not really aware that this happens a whole lot. Um, and they ultimately decided not to. That the ceremony was that important to them and to their community. Um, that even though they had a piece of paper filed in Austin, they were able to make some changes on HR paperwork, that the ceremony is one and the same. It contributes in this mystical, mysterious, beautiful way to their, their wedding. Baptism is like that. It's like this public ceremony we go through where we are initiated into the family of God, into the body of Christ with our, our brothers and sisters. And for the early Christians, baptism was something that was extremely important to your identity and through various Christians throughout the years. Sometimes we get baptized and we kind of leave it behind us. And when we deal with new questions or new temptations or new doubts, we don't often think like, well, let me think about my baptism. But for Paul and for other Christians, it seems like baptism sometimes acts as a wedding ring. Martin Luther, the, the Protestant reformer, very famously, um, when, when he was under attack um, from Satan and, and he was um, being called all these bad names and titles and didn't feel like he was worthy of being loved by God, would, would famously remind himself, I've been baptized. I've been baptized. I've been baptized. Or what you can say to me right now, I have been baptized. And because of our conceptual framework, we might find that odd. What does getting dunked in water really have to do with who you are and, and how that applies to your current situation? But he had seen this connection. All he had to do was look at his wedding ring, right? His baptism, to understand what had happened to him. What was ultimately more true about himself than whatever the present situation had shown or he had experienced. The second thing to note here is, is Paul uses the language of clothing, wardrobe, when he talks about baptism. He says, you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. This is literally um, the Greek wording here. So you have um, put on Christ in the same way that you would have constructed a sentence in the ancient world in Greek. In Greek just have put on clothing. Um, now, for Paul, this is a very common metaphor he uses specifically in regards to baptism. You find it in multiple of his letters. You put on Christ. And he used the language of putting on virtues and putting off certain virtues. Um, and he often connects it with baptism. Um, and I think there are a, a number of ways, perhaps, that you and I might be able to look into what he's getting at, where he finds this idea, and what it might mean to him. One possible source for this idea of putting on Christ's baptism is a Roman ceremony that was fairly familiar to people in the first century. Um, where young Roman boys, um, when they were about 14, 15, 16, um, had this coming-of-age ceremony, this kind of transitional ceremony from boy to man. And it was like a toga party, not like your frat brothers in college, okay, through a toga party, um, depending on what your frat brothers were like, I don't know. Um, what they would do is, is they would exchange one toga for another toga, um, they put off this kind of crimson toga, which was the toga of childhood. They put on this white one, which was the toga of manhood or adulthood. Um, and this very clearly marked for them this coming of age, this maturity that had occurred in their life. Um, who they were now, what their identity was, what was expected of them now, what would be asked of them now. One of the criticisms of some of our modern Western societies, societies is that we've um, in some ways, gotten rid of a lot of these coming-of-age rituals. And so we have um, children who are perhaps too young try to act like adults. And 
and try to fill the role of an adult, maybe for various reasons, around them, inside of them. Um, we have other children who perhaps are old enough to be acting like an adult and have no reason to be acting like a child, and yet still they act like children. And in, in a lot of societies throughout history and around the world even today, there have been these very clearly marked, very important and meaningful <coughs> moments in time where the entire community recognized a difference. You are no longer a child. You're a man or woman. You are now an adult. Um, in certain societies, um, this continues in some shocking ways. Um, when I visited Kenya for a, a summer um, eight, nine years ago, um, <clears throat> there were a couple tribes uh, still in Kenya. Um, not, not many, right? But they still existed, and they performed kind of a controversial act um, for their, their coming-of-age ceremony. Um, it involved circumcision, and it involved this plant that made you burn or steam real bad. Um, and the, the idea you usually find in these coming of age ceremonies is there's some kind of pain or sacrifice associated with the rite. It's usually something you do in a group with other people. Um, sometimes, you know, you might send some, some boys into the forest, in the woods, and they have to come back with an animal that they've killed. Um, the scholars call this liminality, the space of liminality, where you experience some danger, there's some unknown, and because of that, you bond with your peers. I think we can all realize that, right? A lot of people we're closest with, you've probably been through some wars with. Not literally, perhaps some of us literally. Um, but you, you've, you've gone through some stuff together. That journey, that service together, brought you close. Developed these bonds. Created those memories. So you, you bond with your peers, and then also, um, you overcome something. And then there's a public celebration of what has happened in your life. Where the entire community acknowledges something's different now. And you and I know now we can expect different things. We can ask different things. We have a different role to play. And perhaps Paul is referring to this. is echoing this Roman um, practice when he talks about putting on Christ in the act of baptism. We do know he's just in his last breath mentioned another Roman practice about Roman boys. Right? That of the pedagogue the tutor, the, the disciplinarian. Um, he says the law was like that. The, the one who takes the kid to school and back, protects him and disciplines him when he gets out of step. So it's perhaps not all that unusual that Paul would still be able to reference um, this, this Roman practice. Um, we think that um, one of the most obvious places this language comes from is the act of baptism itself. Uh, the early Christian baptism was very defined and in some ways very unique. Um, they took baptism very seriously. And so it was a long process of training and learning, um, of ethical development. Um, you had to learn how to stop doing certain things. You had to learn how to start doing other things. Um, and in a lot of these early Christian communities, they were not afraid to tell you you weren't ready. That even at the end of this long process, months or years, sorry, you're not getting baptized yet. You haven't quite gotten there. Um, and the baptism um, ceremony itself, what they would do is um, they separate the boys and girls, um, and then the one getting baptized would strip, um, just often not a part of our church stuff anymore. Um, a handful of churches out in like this one county in Texas maybe, um, but just not really a suburban practice. Um, but they would strip, and then they'd get in the water and be baptized. And then as they came out, they were given a, a white robe. They put on this robe, and all this was a rehearsing of salvation, a, a symbolic picture of what had happened because of their faith and now in their baptism. 
to the water, you go in and you die with Christ, and you resurrect out of the water, out of the ground with Christ. You now participate in what Christ has done. You're drawn into Christ. What he's done now affects you as if you had done it. And you take off your old life, your old identity, the old rules that applied to you, the old expectations. And after baptism, you put on this white robe that represented Christ, his life. It represented this new life you have been called into. So from the very beginning, this putting off and putting on was very literally a part of baptism. And it symbolized your, your sonship, your daughterhood. It symbolized that you were now in Christ, a child of God. And then there's one other possible reason. Perhaps he's referring to multiple things as he uses this language or building this language off of these practices. In the Old Testament, priests would go through this washing ceremony um, that involved putting on new garments as they were consecrated in the service, in the ministry. And perhaps Paul is... Um, refracting all of these different angles when he uses this language. In baptism, you become spiritually mature. You leave, you leave one age of your life, one era, time period of your life, and you enter into a new one. Different things can be asked of you. Different things are expected of you. You know, the spiritual maturity. You also celebrate and enter into this um, full relationship with the Father. Participation with Christ. And then you are, as well, like a priest consecrated into service. Now, a, a kingdom of, of priests. As you go out and minister to the various people around you. He mentions baptism here. Because for Paul, baptism seems to be now taking the place of circumcision. And a lot of his argument has been about circumcision. Do Gentile Christians have to be circumcised to come into the family of God. And Paul's emphatically said no. And in many ways, he seems to think that baptism is now the new marker of who's in God's family. It's a new symbol. It's a new status. It's a new ring on your finger. No longer is it the fact that someone's circumcised or not. It's that they've gone into the water and they've come out of the water. I think this is why Luther perhaps uses that um, as so strongly in his faith. He doesn't check to see if he's circumcised when he has doubts. He remembers and relives his baptism. That's what signals him out. That's what makes his identity solid in the world and in front of God. And you can notice a handful of things, one important one right off the bat about baptism. Whereas circumcision is an exclusive activity um, kept to one gender of the population in the Old Testament, baptism is remarkably inclusive. Everyone can get into water, and everyone can come out of water. In fact, you don't need a certain amount of money to get a procedure done. You don't need to have certain things in order to get certain things altered. No, anybody can go into the water and come out of the water. I think it's precisely this act of faith and this being put into and putting on Christ leads him into this next verse, verse 28, where he makes these very explosive claims about social distinctions and divisions. This verse, in verse 28, has often been the cry of the abolitionists throughout history. It's often been part of the fuel that has pushed Christians toward freedom and equality and justice for all. As, as Paul um, puts forth here what some have called the kind of Magna Carta, 
of uh, Christian identity. Um, and so he, he says this, and it's, it's shocking. I mean, if you just allow yourself to read this on surface, on its, on its face, this is sweeping. This is completely world-changing. We often like to qualify it right away so we don't have to think about or deal with what it might mean if this was actually true, what, what ways it might work out into our lives. But he says this very plainly, without qualifiers, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Now he's been talking about Gentiles, which are similar to Greeks, but not entirely the same thing. Perhaps Greek is a synonym of Gentiles, which makes sense that he's that's kind of been the topic of his conversation this whole time. Or perhaps Greek is more of a reference, not to ethnicity or race, but to um, religion, religious background. Um, where Jews um, worshipped in one way, Greeks worshipped in various different ways. He says there's no more. There's no Jew in Greek. You can't put labels on people like that anymore. He then says there are no more. There's neither slave nor free. There are no social distinctions, cultural distinctions. There's someone who owns land or someone who has different degrees of, of freedom. Economically, socially, and then he says, and, and this has gotten most of the attention from people throughout um, at least modern history, um, there's no male and female. And this is where we all start to be like, I'm on board with the slaves and free. I'm on board perhaps with the Jew and the Greek. Those concepts don't really apply to us that much anymore anyway, so it doesn't cost us too much to give that up. But what in the world are you talking about here? There's no male, there's no female. Certainly there is, in one sense, still males and females. Like, just ontologically, in reality, corporal bodies that still exist. And he says, why? Because you are all one, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, a couple things to note here as we explore this verse. I want to again say that this comes out of, it's not separate from, Paul's conclusions about faith and about our inclusion, conclusion in Jesus. It's because of our baptism that these things are true of those who are in Christ. Um, this is a, a point we'll come back to. I don't think it's wise to try to make a distinction between theology or our salvation and then our, our practice in life, our ethics, um, or the way we treat justice or pursue justice. I think that's profoundly unwise. He then says again with his qualifier, why are these distinctions now no longer existent? Because we're all one. We've been unified in Christ Jesus. Paul is not perhaps getting quite at what we might call equality, which is much more of a concern for us than it was in the, the ancient world. Abolishing hierarchies, things of that nature. Um, it's not so much Paul saying everyone's equal now, although perhaps what we mean by quality does overlap greatly with what he's getting at here. He says there's this newly created unity. There's this new people group who have been created. Um, Paul operates, um, particularly here in Galatians, on this principle of new creation. That God has done something new in Jesus. That a new world has been born. The old word world is passing away. It's, we've died to the old. We've stepped into the new. These pairs, these opposites, were often listed in various places in the ancient world as kind of the foundations of structure and order in the world. And Paul seems to be hinting at here that those were only applicable, those only held up society, 
religious groups, in the old world. And what's now created, what's now happening in Jesus, these things don't seemingly apply. They're not um, as important. Notice again that the, the wording changes in the parallel. It goes Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and then this third triad here, male and female. See how the ors change the, the and there at the end? The parallelism is interrupted. Um, a lot of people, and, and I'm myself fairly convinced of this, think that the reason Paul's language changes here, one of the main reasons, is because he's making a reference to, his language has been dominated now by a verse in the Old Testament. Genesis 1.27. Creation. Where God says, Let us make man humankind in our image, male and female. And so Paul is referring again to something about creation. Which might further reinforce this idea that we're now talking about new creation. The new thing that, that God has now done in the world through Jesus. And it has abolished these, these distinctions. Ethnic, racial distinctions. Jew or Greek. Social or cultural distinctions between slaves and free people. Male and female the various differences that, that come because of those various expectations and roles and expectations. Why? Because something new has been created. And you and I belong to that new thing in Christ. Now your main question that people will get into tips over here is whether this is something that's only supposed to be understood spiritually, kind of like an invisible reality we understand in our relationship with God. That is, maybe before God himself, there's no male or female. We're just human beings, right? A female has access equally to God as males do. For God himself, there's no slave or free. There's no different religious backgrounds. But obviously in the real world, right, there's still genders and there's still backgrounds, ethnicities and um, religious backgrounds. There's still levels of um, equality, socio-culturally, between people who are free versus people who might experience um, slavery in, in various levels and degrees and to various extents. I think this is incorrect um, for a handful of reasons. Um, one is that we know that what Paul is emphasizing probably in this verse, the Jews and the Greeks, we know that this makes a real impact in the world for Paul. We don't have to go much farther back to Galatians chapter 2 to see Paul confront Peter, the apostle, because Peter's not sitting with Gentiles at the table. And Paul thinks that action... That social action is so egregious that it is getting close to distorting the gospel, preaching a different gospel. This is if you're not sitting together, which is a lot more important perhaps in the ancient world than it is to you and I. If you're not sitting together, if you don't have this relationship of table fellowship together, then you don't really understand what Christ has done. Then this baptism, this new creation has been lost on you. You're still living in this old world. Where everything's broken, where you're enslaved. Christ wanted to set us free to liberate into, us, into this, this new world. We know, however, that Paul doesn't speak on slavery the same way every time he mentions it. There are passages where Paul seems to just accept slavery. That's something that exists in his time. Now, what slavery was in the first century is, is quite different from what slavery was as an institution in America. It was perhaps a lot more economic in the ancient world. There were indentured servants. Sometimes people would sell themselves into slavery, try to pay off debts. Um, sometimes 
on occasion, it was a better thing for a person to become a slave um, for their family, and for their protection, and for their economic um, situation. Uh, male and female, um, we think perhaps it's pretty obvious that Paul still works with the concepts of a woman and a man um, throughout different parts of his, his letters, the different parts of his writings. I have a rule, though, that some of my grad work was in political theology. I have a rule that if you are using an argument or a verse in such a way to justify or to support, let's say, a politician, a leader, a policy, that if you ripped it out of context and you place it in front of something else, the Nazi regime, slavery in America, if the argument still works, if the argument would equally justify or rationalize something that we now can pretty freely acknowledge as evil and was a complete mistake, then you should probably go back to the drawing board with that argument. You should probably think very closely about how you're using that verse. Because you might think you're in the right right now, and you may have other good reasons to be in the right, but just on that basis, you would have been on the wrong side of justice in some of the most horrible things human beings have ever participated in that now we have no moral ambiguity about. That would have supported Hitler or justified his authority. Then I think you've done it wrong somewhere. If a white supremacist uses that kind of language, I think you've, you've, you've done it wrong somewhere. You need to go back to the drawing board. It doesn't mean your conclusion is necessarily wrong. It just means I think there are probably more solid ways to get there if you think you truly are correct. And... Likewise, these verses and others like them have often been used to support things that you and I now find clearly incompatible with the love of Christ, with the, the call on our lives. Um, I do think that these have a, a social impact in our lives. Um, I don't think it's just spiritual. Many will point out that the, the unity is in Christ Jesus. It's not necessarily something the state recognizes. It's not necessarily something that is, is built up here in this world. But again, I don't think that limits it. I do think it's important. We're still in a time where um, people will exclude women um, from various things in the church, um, from various ministries, various leadership roles. Um, and again, I think it would be wise to, to let me run that through this verse, right? Um, if only a man can preach, which I find to be completely wrong. But I understand. I've read the arguments. I kind of grew up in that tradition. I had to be convinced otherwise. If that's true, then why don't we then say that only a white person can preach? Only a Jewish person can preach. Or only a Greek person can preach. Because clearly, there's some important differences in this unity. Or, if that's true... Why can't only landowners preach? Why can't only those who can vote at a certain time preach? I mean, these are these are real things. Why can't someone who's who's in debt still preach? No, I think in this verse and in, in clearly others, women like all others are invited into equal participation based on gifts and callings in the body of Christ. 
I likewise don't think, however, um, that it's just something that we can contain to the church. The church is a preview of new creation. The church is like an advanced sign of what the world will one day always be. So the way we forgive each other in this body is a preview. It's a taste of the way forgiveness will one day reign over the world. The way we love each other will one day be how everyone loves each other. What we have is never meant to only be for ourselves. Or it's never meant to be kept away from the rest of the world. I think likewise when we, we take concepts like this um, and we try to say they only apply on Sunday mornings. Only apply when, when we're together. We don't play any impact on how we see things or treat things and other people in the rest of our, our day and the rest of our week. I think we're, we're perhaps off base. It's likely that Paul here in this verse is referencing a common prayer in the Jewish world. And you find versions of this actually in the Greek world, Greco-Roman world as well. Um, the prayer goes like this. I want you to just, let's do it like an imagination game. Um, imagine that you are here one day for whatever reason and you walk by the hallway and I'm in my office and you hear me pray. And you stop to listen in because you're like, surely this is going to be good, right? Yeah. And you heard this. Just imagine you heard me praying this. I don't know what your thought would be. This I'm just quoting here. Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Maybe in our modern translation. Blessed be God that I'm not Asian. Or that I wasn't raised a Muslim. Blessed be God that he did not make me ignorant, or in many prayers, a slave. Blessed be God that I was born in this um, cultural socioeconomic status, not these other ones. And then lastly, perhaps most popularly, blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. Amen and amen. I think you'd have some problems, right? You'd be like, I don't know where you're getting those ideas from, but I'm not so sure... That, that's a really good prayer to pray. I'm not so sure you're understanding things correctly there. Paul seems to hit all three of these right here in this passage. It makes a difference. Now the question of what kind of difference does it make? How far should we take this? There are some who, from this verse and others, would say Christians have a call to support um, the breakdown of unfair differences between men and women. Both in the church... Um, in the workplace, in society. There are some, though, who go even farther, very radically, and would say there's no gender differences at all anymore. We shouldn't understand that there would be anything different between a male or a female. Just like um, perhaps the institution of slavery was something we constructed. It doesn't actually exist among humans. Perhaps gender is the social construct. I mean, we're imposing upon to label and to understand. I'm not sure exactly where that line is primarily because I don't think we should build such big ideas off of one verse um, I think in fact that's a problem you see very often people defend things like slavery defend things like oppression is they're proof texting they're finding one verse and they're trying to build a much larger argument off of this do I find in this verse the seeds, the echoes that might grow into a very holistic and fruitful model for society, for relationships? Yes. Do I think this is the only place we can ever have this discussion? No. I think when we're talking about freedom, when you look at the other places where Paul talks about slavery and the scriptures, I think when we're talking about um, gender, when you look at these other places where it happens. I think this is just an important conversation partner. 
And he just um, pushes the wheel, gets the, the, the ball in motion towards something much larger and, and bigger, towards something much more just, um, towards something much more ideal, this, this new creation. Um, in fact, if you um, really take this new creation idea very seriously, as some scholars do, um, this male and female starts to make a little bit more sense, actually. Because many Jews believe that in the resurrection, in the new age, that there would be no male and female. And it's less of a philosophical discussion about whether you gendered physically or otherwise in new creation, but more of the fact that um, it's a very common belief. Jesus himself seems to believe this. He mentions this in the Gospels, um, that after the resurrection, you're not married anymore. You're not procreating anymore. Um, again, it's kind of weird for us. You know, we often in just pop culture imagine that we're married forever. Um, perhaps for some of us, this is a relief. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just joking. Shouldn't be you. But this is a very common idea that these gender differences would functionally be non existent um, in this, this new creation, um, this new world that, that Jesus is bringing. It starts here and with us. Now, in like this, very recently, this week or right at the end of last week, there was a group of evangelical, very conservative Christians that signed a statement. And it was, uh, I don't remember the full name of it, it was a statement on social justice and the gospel. They'd previously done one, I think, made primarily about gender and gender equality, called the Nashville Statement, um, I believe. Um, their basic premise in this one, and it's very similar to what was expressed in the last one, was that um, social justice is not compatible with the gospel. Um, that the gospel has nothing to say about social justice. The gospel is about your acceptance before God. Um, it's not about an agenda in the world. Um, you find this in some other forms in like more partisan politics, right? So it's social justice warrior, SJW, as it's put in mind, it's known as a, a slur sometimes um, from very uh, conservative people toward um, people who are perhaps more progressive, um, things of that nature. Um, this shouldn't be our agenda, is to try to manufacture this, this better world. Um, I think, along with many others, that this could not be more wrong. This could not be more, more off-base, off-kilter. Um, primarily because the, the people um, writing these statements don't seem to be reading the Gospels very much. They can quote a whole lot of verses. Many of them are not from Jesus not from the Gospels, where the kingdom of God is most surely a social reality, where what we sometimes badly translate as righteousness, it's just justice. Seek first God's kingdom and justice, and all these things will be added to you. They want to separate out a passage like this, where what's important is just that you've been baptized, just that we've been adopted, and don't see the immediate connection between that and a new reality, new relationships, new unity. Don't see the call for Christians to engage the world like Jesus did, to be faithful witnesses to God's plan and God's will. So I think this is an important verse for us to question our systems and structures. I mean, starting here, right, in the church, I think it starts there for sure. Is there racial equality? Is there, is there fairness? Is there unity? 
between various people of socioeconomic status? Is there justice for women and for men? For adults and for children? I think this is one that we've seen play out in a nasty way in the public. That for too often, justice has just been for the leaders of the church, and a very perverted kind of justice. But the children who get trampled underneath those leaders don't have justice. They write reports, go to the authorities, and 30 years later, there's some scandals in the news. No, in the, in the body of Christ, children are one with adults. Leaders are one with anybody else. To seek justice and unity around the cross in Christ. So we come back and we, we embrace our identity in Christ, and we look around us introspectively, discerningly, and constantly ask how that identity might work itself out more faithfully in our relationships with others and how we treat other people, how we engage other people in the type of things we build, in the type of things that we participate in, the type of things we're able to reform. So this morning, we are reminded of our status as members of the family of God, as those who have put on Christ and are found in Christ. As we come to the table this morning, like baptism, we also rehearse salvation, in a sense. We come and remember and celebrate the fact that Jesus was crucified and risen, eating of the, the bread and drinking of the cup. And as we come to the table, we don't come as individuals. It's not a virtual reality screen that gets put in front of you. We come as a people group, a social group, a family. And it, it doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account, or what your skin looks like, or what gender you might be. We're all coming to the table, side by side. There's unity, reconciliation with God, and reconciliation with one another at the table. And these are perhaps two sides of the same coin, begun in Christ and completed in Christ.